course, one of the other things that people have to do in cities is work. What's happened to work in British cities? Well, many, many things. But one of the things which produced the big problem of the 1960s and 70s, the inner city problem, was, of course, deindustrialization. In other words, the decline of manufacturing industry. I don't think we should romanticise that manufacturing industry. It was pretty horrendous to work in many of those factories and many of the jobs were for men and definitely not for women. So it had all its bad sides. But nonetheless, when British cities started so heavily in the 1960s onwards to lose manufacturing jobs, it really took the heart out of a lot of them in many, many ways, socially as well as economically. And I think it raises some very important issues. I would say that the reason for that deindustrialization was, above all, Britain's changing place in the international division of labour. It was less and less primarily a manufacturing contributor to the world economy. And the cities got hit first and they got hit hardest by that process because they had the first industry, that's where industrialisation took place, and therefore they had the oldest industry and they had the most expensive land. So that's how I would explain deindustrialization. What happened, though, was that a story began to be told which actually blamed the cities for industrialization. We have a classic structure agency thing going on here, where it was the people, as it were, left in the cities that were blamed for what was suddenly seen as the horrors of the inner city. It was the feckless. It was the unskilled, who, of course, weren't unskilled. They weren't just skilled for the new industries and so forth. And a whole new, I think reimagination of the inner city as the home of the, the destitute and the desolate and a place of fear was created during that period as a result of structural forces that were international in scope and yet it led to us telling a new story and creating new people and places to blame. And social scientists were not entirely innocent in this process, it has to be said. But a really interesting case, both of the structure agency debate and also of the effect of the ways in which we know because that story was really, really powerful and contributed yet again to our anti-urbanism, I think. Do you think think that story intersected with the story of the failure of public housing? Yes. It all went together of a piece because this was also the period when some of the very definitely inferior kinds of public housing began to be uh, evident, Uh, some of the high-rise dwellings which just were simply not given enough resources to be decent housing. I mean, some of them have been blown up, but others have been converted into chintzy penthouse suites for people who've got the money to buy them. So it's not the building in itself, but that combination of factors with the memory of the kind of problems of planning that Ken was talking about earlier, I think contributed to an accumulation of pictures. Once again, the inner city was a place where, you know, it was fearful to go. But it is no longer. Absolutely. I mean, that's what's interesting is that the inner city, which was demonised in the 70s and 80s as a place of kind of squalor and deprivation and, and danger, has now been replaced in the 90s by the peripheral large housing estate or white suburb, Absolutely. which is the place of a monoculture where the kind of social networks are broken down and is no longer connected to the city. So it is interesting to track the ways in which certain parts of the city in one generation are the place of danger, in the next generation are place of excitement and opportunity. I wonder whether we're in danger of telling too simplistic a story here because the story that I hear the two of you telling together in a way seems to me to be about the big cities in Britain. It's certainly applicable to chunks of London. It's the story of Liverpool, of Manchester, of Sheffield, of Leeds. Is it the story of Norwich? Is it the story of Plymouth? Is there slightly more diversity and complexity in the experience of 
British cities in the post-war era than we've been letting on? Are we letting the kind of old industrial core dominate our understanding, important and significant well, there, as there they are? Well, there are also differences between the big cities. I mean, Newcastle, for instance, got very little immigration from the Commonwealth. Different industries declined in different cities. It depends. I mean, there's no way of drawing a line between what's a city and what's not. But clearly, there are highly differentiated experiences. Some cities, I mean, like Plymouth, got bombed very heavily and had very different kinds of histories. So within these general stories, of course, there is specificity. You raise the issue of Norwich. I mean, I think Norwich has probably been transformed by having a university. And it's interesting how many towns and cities have been transformed by the phenomenal growth of higher education. Why is that? What does higher education bring to a city in a way that, I don't know, a steelworks doesn't? Well, it certainly brings a lot of outsiders, and a lot of those outsiders will be coming from other countries as well. So it has that immediate impact. It obviously helps contribute to the economy. And university students, uh, students, do have a way, as it were, of breaking up traditional settlement patterns. They may take over some of the worst housing. They may move into an area that was, because it's low rents and running down, and kind of transform it in some way. Now, the impact of higher education on British cities has actually not really been given the full recognition it deserves. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.